Still fall. Yeah. It's getting winter in a lot of this United States. I'm glad we're not in it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to ski season. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do some skiing this winter. So I uh, hadn't done that in a whole lot of years. So if I hopefully I'm not too fat and out of shape to do that and, and run the mountain, but hopefully I'm gonna get out to out west and do a little skiing. Oh, that's fun. Where's your favorite place out west? Oh man, there's so many. Probably um, one that's lesser known. Yeah. Um, it's called Arapaho Mountain. It's uh, outside of Denver. Oh. Uh, it, it's a basin they call it. It's uh, the lar- it's, I think it's the highest point, the Continental Divide, at least in Colorado. Oh my goodness! But it's a great little mountain. And uh, it's it, not well known, I guess. Well, it's it's known by the locals. <gasps> okay. Um, it's outside of uh, Breckenridge, Keystone, those ski gotcha. areas. Uh, but uh, it's a fun little run to to run over there, and uh, they got a fantastic bowl if you're into bowl skiing and. They are always the first ones to open because they're the highest, I think, in that area, okay. and the last ones to close and that kind of thing. But uh, I've been going there for a lot of years, so it's, nice. a, it's a nice little place. But I don't know if I'll get to go there this season. Uh, we'll probably uh, have some folks with us, I think, and uh, probably do Breckenridge. And I don't know that I could handle a basin because I haven't skied in a lot of years. Oh, God. Uh, uh, why don't you try Ober Gatlinburg first? Yeah. Kind of get well, your uh, get ski my... feet ready. Well, the <laughs> ski I, legs. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully they'll have snow. Um, that's the thing about East Coast. A lot of great places in the eastern United States to ski, but uh, over one of them, but uh, it's lower elevation. So, and we're and it's we're starting to get into the south. Yeah. So, uh, uh, snow is sometimes far and few between, <laughs> but uh, up around Boone and, and you got Beach Mountain and Sugar Mountain as well. And then on into West Virginia, Snowshoe, Winter Place. There's some places up Beautiful there. Beautiful up there. And then of course you can head on up toward New England states, and there's some wonderful skiing up there. But yeah. uh, different skiing on the east in the east coast than it is in the west coast, yeah, for sure. So what are we uh, what are we talking about today? We're going to talk about industrial robotics, and the title of this episode is "Industrial Ro- Robotics." It doesn't have to be complex. Okay. So um, I think we're just gonna it's going to be kind of basic. We're going to go over the types of robots that are used in manufacturing, and first of all, I would like to see if we can get some definitions on some terms. Because when I, when I first started working at Elitech, you know, I didn't know any of these things. So, um, you but know, now like, you're an expert. Oh, no, 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 by far <laughs> no. Uh, like an a- axis, you know, what's an axis and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So you want to start with that? Or? So kind of like keeping me from the acronyms of IOT. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about the things that I constantly just blather out as if everybody knows the term. So that's a, that's a great idea. So, um, I had application in there because sometimes people don't know what application, well, you know, I mean, if you're not in manufacturing application, you know, what, what is an application in manufacturing terms? Well, an application is any, anything you would apply something to a solution to. And so, uh, we talk a lot about applications, whether that's a good application or a bad application for a specific solution or proposed solution. And, and, uh, our focus is on industrial robots, so I'll just go ahead and say, and I think I mentioned this back in our very first podcast, um, you asked me about, we were talking about our, our um, pre-engineered systems and the robot robotic cells are part of that. And I think you asked me something along the lines of, uh, when would you use one? And I said, honestly, sometimes you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to. Um, and so the application is deciding what it is you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish. And then, of course, the next step from there is to decide feasibility. Uh, the feasibility of can you get there from here with this solution, be it a robot or iota or whatever it is. Okay. And then second of all, what are the considerations that come with that? We talked about return on investments, ROI. We talked about just overall cost, which kind of ties back to ROI. Uh, and then just feasibility overall, what's it going to take to do this? Um, and, and there's more, sometimes more involved than, than money. 
Uh, it might be I need a certain class of people with a certain level of training. I, you know, those kind of things come into play. Okay. And so uh, all that, though, really is described based upon or starts with what is the application? What are we trying to solve? Okay, what are you trying to accomplish with with this, okay, sure. all right. So, what about axes then? The degrees of freedom. Yep. So, axes and axes. Uh, usually, when people think of robots, they think you well, know, unless they're thinking R two D two and yeah. science fiction. Most people think about what we call an articulated arm robot. Um, I think that's what most people would recognize as a robot. But there's a lot of different types. Uh, Cartesians, articulated arms, scares, things of that nature. And we'll go through, I'm sure those, I'm looking here ahead of your outline, and that's on the list of questions you're going to ask me. So we'll save that for a minute. But um, uh, each one of those is defined based upon an axis or a degree of freedom. So I'm going to assume everybody had eighth, that's listening has had eighth grade mathematics, where we learned to graph things. And we graphed on an X and a Y axes. Well, each one of those is an axis. So it's a uh, on paper, and that's called a Cartesian coordinate system. There's different coordinate systems, but Cartesian is X, Y, Z, okay. uh, are the most basic of three-dimensional space. And then you also have a theta, which determines rotation in three-dimensional space. But uh, X and Y is the most, it's a two-dimensional, like a, almost like a map. But we would, we would say uh, you would have a list of things, and, and you would have an x-coordinate and a y-coordinate. And so you would go to where the x is, x-value is on the axis, the x-axis, and draw a line out. And then you would go to the y-axis where that is and where those two lines intersected was that x-y-coordinate okay. on the graph. all right. And so the x-axis is a degree of freedom because you can move in the x direction. The y axis is a degree of freedom because you can move down the y axis. And so instead of just only being able to move along that x line, now you can move anywhere in that x and y space, positive or negative. Okay. So now you can define a point in space based upon those axes. And so it's where it works mathematically. In robots, our Cartesian robot, remember that I said that was a Cartesian coordinate system, so a Cartesian robot works the same way. We have linear actuators, our servo actuators in the pre-engineered section, uh, linear actuators that move in one axis along the x-axis, let's say, line, and then we mount to that another one that moves along with that, that moves 90 degrees to that. That's the y-axis line, and so now if we have a tool at the end of that y-axis, we can move it anywhere in within that 2D defined space, just oh, like good. the graph paper. Now, if that tool is able to move up and down, relative to the table surface or something, uh, to the XY plane, then now we have a third axis. So X is an axis, Y is an axis, Z is an axis. In articulated arm robots and scare robots and things of that nature, each one of the motors then, we usually tie that to a motor, a servo motor, a oh, controlling okay. motor, because that's what's moving the axis. So um, each each uh, joint joints, has if you're, a... Uh, so I'm looking at my arm and going, yeah. okay... So each joint is run by a motor then? A motor, a servo okay, motor, yeah. Okay. So a servo motor, uh, that's I don't think that's on your list, oh, but no. a servo motor is a it's a reg it's a it's what we call a DC permanent magnet motor. So DC, there's DC direct current, there's AC alternate current. What's coming out of the wall is alternate current AC. Uh, what comes out of a battery is DC current. But we can take AC current and convert it to DC current and then chop it up to make it look like AC current again. Uh, but by doing that, we can, along with permanent magnets in, in a servo motor, we can control that motor as far as its position. Oh. And again, that position ties back to a device called an encoder that tells us the shaft position. We're getting kind of deep dive on this, so I don't want to go too deep, but it essentially will tell me the degrees um, of that motor shaft and how many revolutions that it's made. Now you tie that to a, a device that converts that rotary motion, the motor spinning, okay. the shaft spinning into linear motion. That could be a, a belt actuator or a, 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 what we call a ball screw or acme screw actuator, a screw actuator. And so when you turn the screw, the, the nut moves up and down the screw. So now you're taking rotary motion and turning it into linear motion. Or if you have a belt and pulley system, you're turning the pulley and that moves, and if you have a carriage connected to that belt, now you're turning rotary motion by turning the pulley into linear motion by moving the carriage on the belt back and forth. Oh. And so actuators work to convert motion. 
from one type to the other, okay. mechanical motion. So rotary motion into linear motion, or you can actually take linear uh, a, a linear actuator and put a put a gear on it that drives uh, uh, you know on a fixed what we call a fixed rack or or, or a piece of a, a geared shaft, if you will. Uh, and you can convert linear motion into rotary motion. And so that's what an actuator does. So a motor, if we're talking about rotary servo motors, uh, any type of rotational motor is rotary motion, and we want to convert that to linear motion. We also talked about linear motors, which are motors that are designed to work in linear motion, not in rotary motion. Okay. So those are the different types of things. But those, the pulling back up, <laughs> with a motor, a servo motor of some type, linear servo, rotary servo, uh, there's also stepper motors and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, we're, we're monitoring the rotational position of that motor. And if it's tied to something like a screw or a belt, we can do a little bit of math and decide that one revolution of the motor equals this many inches or millimeters or in, in, in linear terms. Okay. And so... Tying all those together into a Cartesian system creates a Cartesian robot. Robot meaning that we're doing it, it's able to control itself. We can be programmed and it can move to these positions very accurately, very quickly. And so that's a Cartesian robot. You said joints. You said every joint, you were talking about your wrist, was controlled with a motor. Yes, it is. Uh, But a joint... We usually would refer to with an articulated arm robot or a scarer robot. Okay, okay. Because you don't often have, because we think of joints being just like your wrist moving, movable, yeah, uh, or your your elbow or your shoulder, and the, the, that's more scara or articulated arm robots. Okay. Um, but a Cartesian robot X Y Z, and then if that Z can rotate, that's a theta. Uh, is is not normally a joint. Normally, it's a it, we call that a linear axis. Oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. Okay, so uh, what about pitch and yaw and well, roll is pretty you know self-explanatory, but pitch and yaw just for those that don't know. Well, we don't. I don't normally use pitch, yaw, and roll in oh, my discussions. Oh, okay. But unless I'm talking about flying airplanes, which I fly airplanes, and so if you're a pilot, you know what pitch and yaw and roll is. Uh, it's a little different according to from us flying airplanes versus, say, on a CNC machine, things of that nature. Uh, or actually, even in articular arm robots, it's, it's opposite. But um, pitch and yaw and roll is just de- defining, again, I think more so, that's probably primarily going to be articulated arm robots. Okay, okay. Um, where we're talking about how we're coming, because all those joints are tied together. Mm. Okay, so mm, coordinate systems. okay. Uh, a coordinate system, just like we talked about X, Y, Z, and theta. I said earlier, I can do, you can define anything in this room. We're in a room, our podcast room here at Elotech headquarters. Any place inside this room, you can define with X, Y, Z, and if you want to decide which way we're looking, theta, right? Okay. Any place in this room, you can take a measuring tape. You decide which corner you're going to is zero, and you measure from that point, and you can tell me. You know, with using this corner of the room as zero, go to, you know, X be 10 feet, Y be 4 feet, Z is going to be 5 feet off the floor, and then rotate so many degrees. And I, I will know, I will be able to tell what, you know, what direction you were referencing. Okay, okay. okay? So that's a means of, it's like a GPS, uh, except we're not doing latitude and longitude, we're, we're, we're just dealing with the room. We go outside this room, and now all of a sudden we don't know. But uh, inside the room, that's what we're doing. So that's a Cartesian coordinate system, and so it's used to define a point in space. Okay, so does work envelope, how does that... Um... Well, let's come back to work envelope. Okay, 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 sorry. So in, in, we're still pitch you on row. So so in a with a SCARA robot, in a Cartesian robot, the axis are very well defined. This motor is driving the X linear motion. This second motor is driving the Y this motor's driving the Z, and this motor's driving the theta. So we have four distinct motors driving four distinct distinct coordinates. Okay. But in an articulated arm robot, and also in a scare robot, you're not really you're moving individual joints, and you're moving them in a spherical or a polar way. And so we're having to do what's called coordinate conversion or kinematics. Oh wow! So it's more complex. Uh, so go back to your arm. 
your yeah, shoulder, yeah, your yeah. elbow, your wrist to the tip of your finger. Uh-huh. If now I said, tell me where, based upon your arm, your shoulder, where that same point in space is that you gave me for the X, Y, and Z. You're going to have to tell me in terms of really degrees, what degree is your shoulder joint, what degree is your elbow, what degree is your wrist, what rotation is your wrist, and that tells me where your your finger will end up pointing at that point in three-dimensional space, right? Yep. But how do you, it, it's not common for me, you to I don't know what to do with you saying, you probably don't even know how many degrees uh, your shoulder is. And so, of course, the, the controllers know, because at the end, of the end of the day, they're looking at single motors. But we're having to do uh, what's called a forward and an inverse kinematics, because we as human beings want to think in terms of X, Y, Z, and theta. And so we're converting that coordinate system into, ultimately, X, Y, Z, and theta. And so that coordination, if you're talking... Uh, how you get to that point or vice versa, that's where the pitch and the yaw and the roll comes into play because the the way the robot's coming at it and things of that nature, pitch, yaw, and roll are, are spherical or oh, okay. polar type coordinates because they're in degrees. Okay, okay. Or pi, I guess. they You could be in rad, was it radians, I guess, uh, according to which side of the mathematic coin you're on. Uh, that's where those really come into play. So in, a, in an airplane, you, you pitch, that, that's the axis, uh, you know, that you're looking out the window, so you're seeing the horizon go up and down, that's your pitch, so it's along, uh, the rotation's along the wings, uh, your, your yaw and your roll, that's coming with different axes on the airplane. But those are spherical, because they're, rotate, they're in degrees, um, and we don't really, except for the theta axis in the Cartesian, that's the only degree thing that we talked about. Everything else was measuring tape. Right? Uh-huh. Linear, linear coordinates. And so uh, most of us, be it on a CNC, uh, from a CNC background, from like me, a, a Cartesian motion background, or generally robot bro- uh, background, we're moving to points in space, and those points are not just theoretical points. We want them to be millimeters or inches or something along those lines, and, and, and then also with the theta. So that pitch, yaw, and roll, I don't normally talk in terms of those okay. because normally we're talking in terms of work envelope. And the work envelope is usually defined in, it can be spherical because an articulated arm robot and a scare robot, they don't, they're not like a Cartesian that has a rectangular work area. They have an arc or a semicircular work area. Um, and so we would say, where's the part going to be? And we just want to make sure that it falls within that arced work area area but where the work piece is going to be and anything we need to do in order to access the points of that defines our work envelope okay okay but still we usually talk about that work envelope in x y and z type linear dimensions you know we need an area that's roughly you know two feet wide by one feet one foot you know in the in the in the x direction or the y direction the opposite direction uh, so two by two by three with a, a z axis of at least two feet, you know, is what the work piece is going to be, and then we'll figure it all out from there. But um, that that's really what I'm t- I'm typically would say instead of having discussions because honestly, a lot of people don't understand pitch, yaw, and roll. Uh, that's I yeah I had to look at it look it up. So <laughs> um, so what about payload? I, that seems pretty self explanatory, but. Um, it's a big deal when you're considering uh, robots, isn't it? Well, payload is a big deal. You know, we talked about uh, uh, collaborative robots. Uh, collaborative robots are, um, of course, we have Fanuc, and Fanuc's been had some collaborative. We call them the Incredible Hawks, the big green robots that have huge payloads, uh, capa- you know, capability. Uh, yet they're collaborative, which is really different. Uh, a lot of collaborative robots coming uh, into the market today have lower payloads, and so. Your payload is anything that's going to go on the end of the robot, including whatever you're going to use to do the work. So it's not just the part that you're picking up. It has to be the weight of the gripper, the weight of the gripper fingers, the tooling, the end of arm tooling. The the end of arm tooling as a whole, including the weight of the part, will define your payload. Okay, okay. So that they... uh, the person needs to uh, take both of those into account Absolutely. when they're uh, considering the payload. And then a safety factor on top of Oh, that. okay, okay. Because but this is huge, uh, especially collaborative. Industrial robots, pretty much your payload your payload. It can do some, I mean, it's doing some, 
I guess you would call it safety or collision detection. Uh, if you pick up a part that's 20 pounds and your payload is 20 pounds, well, let's say your whole environment tooling, including the part, is 20 pounds. So you're matched 20 pounds for 20 pounds. As soon as you pick that up with any type of an acceleration, you're you're fighting gravity, and so you're going to see more weight effectively, right? Okay, yeah. So um, something weighs what it weighs, but as soon as you try to pick it up, you're picking up 20 pounds plus the acceleration against gravity. And so for a, for a brief moment, you're going to see more than 20 pounds. So you need to add a safety factor. Okay, okay, okay. And the end of arm tooling, you already... Um... It's also called end effectors, isn't it? End effectors, yeah. Uh, anything that, that's going to be used to do the work. So most robots, like the Cartesian um, example, you know, I said you have a carriage and you can mount this and that and that. And then at the end, where the Z-axis end, the end of the Z-axis arm, you would connect your tooling. That's your end of arm tooling. So the arm, really it gets its, I guess that comes from more articulated arm robots because we refer to it as an artic- it's an arm yeah and so the tooling that's at the end of that arm is what we call end of arm tooling what examples can you what are the most common types of end of arm tooling uh probably grippers okay uh, pneumatic or now there's electric grippers out there um that are just have some 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 design of the fingers on the end of tooling that will will grip or pick up. Uh, so if it's a if it's just a basic parallel pneumatic parallel meaning you're moving the fingers in a parallel fashion. Uh, there's also um, I don't remember what they're there, but it calls them the things they're like a V grip or something where it's kind of more of a pinching motion. Okay. Uh, like your thumb and forefinger coming together. Whereas a parallel gripper would be like you know using both of your pointing fingers, your index fingers, and moving in and out in parallel fashion. But nevertheless, whatever's out there, uh, grippers are gripping something. If you're doing a pick in place, if you're, if you're doing, but if you're doing dispensing, dispensing yeah. adhesive or something like that, then, then your end of arm tooling is really just going to be whatever's there to mount the dispensing head or something like that. Okay. Side. So okay. it may be more fixed tooling, just a bolt on surface. Uh, to adapt to carry around a, a, a something like a dispensing head or a paint paint spraying head or something like that. If, or, you're, oh, so, if you're doing an inspection, it's going to hold a camera, you know, those kind of things. Okay. But, but the most common, probably a gripper. Now, I've been reading about uh, a 3D printed um, end of arm tooling. Have, have you seen more uh, manufacturers going that way with the 3D printed? We can do a whole podcast on additive manufacturing, um, 3D printing. Um, 3D printing is coming a long way. Uh, the materials are really what comes down to you having more plastic-based materials, and then that grows into includes, in my opinion, ABS. I'm not a chemical engineer or materials engineer, material science engineer, but um, to me, you've got certain qualities that kind of fall in the same bucket, if I'm being general. Uh, plastics, nylons, uh, ABS, those kind of things come into play. But you can also 3D print metal. Oh, metal. wow. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking about necessarily the, the additive manufacturing that uses MIG welding, where they're actually welding uh, layers upon layers upon layers. I'm talking about 3D printing A2 and D2, D2 uh, steel, which they actually print. Um, uh, and But there's a whole process involved, and it's actually very, very expensive right now. So oh, okay. I don't know how feasible that is um, because you can sure machine the same things, you know. Uh, but uh, um, as far as end-of-arm tooling on a robot, though, I guess you could do whatever you want, um, but from our vantage point, when when we're engineering a system, we're looking at things about you know it's a wear part. So uh, you wouldn't three D. I don't think you would three D print the gripper, but you make three D print the tooling or the fingers for the gripper or something oh, like that. Oh, okay. But those are coming into contact with the part. Uh-huh. Now, if it's holding a dispensing head, such as the adhesive dispensing example, it's fixed tooling, so it'd probably be just fine. I'd probably do that. But if it's gripper fingers, and they're constantly gripping and letting go, gripping and letting go, then they're going to be a wear point. Oh, okay. And, and so metal is going to wear better than the, the plastic-based. Gotcha. I mean, nylon's probably... And ABS are probably more of the better wear, but they're going to wear. Okay. Okay. All right. Are there any other terms you think our listeners need to know before we go into the types of robots? Well, just real quickly, we talked about 
Oh, we're going in the types of robots. Yeah, okay. yeah, and we're going to start with like the very rarely used first. Probably more rare. Yeah, some of these I don't <laughs> recognize. So this is going to be a challenge. No, I think so. I think we're good. Let's keep rolling. Okay, so um, I've there's six types of robots, and um, the first one that uh, is that I caught you off guard with was the polar polar robot. Do you want to tell a little bit about that one? <laughs> that one's even tough to describe, but uh, a polar robot was probably, I would guess, that it's probably one of the very first concepts of a robot. It, in my opinion, and and just, uh, just, just to be above board, I didn't know what a polar robot was, so I Googled it. Uh, Beth gave me a heads up on the outline, and I saw it, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to be caught too too far out. But but looking, I'm so I'm looking at a picture of of the you know some of the original polar robot designs, and it really comes down to it's still axes, it's it's still a coordinate system, but it's polar more polar coordinates is how you. That's why it. it's also called a spherical robot. Yes, right? probably. Yeah. Okay. It, it's a couple of different designs according to these pictures now. The polar robot probably has, I would say, has been displaced by the scarer robot now. Uh, the spherical robot um, has been displaced by the articulated arm robot. Okay. Um, I think uh, because they just based upon these original diagrams of, of the axis and the coordinate systems. Um, of course, I also in looking at, looking at the spherical robots. Uh, today we have a spherical robot that's more like a toy, uh, oh. which puts the um, puts a um, motor inside of this thing and so it's like a toy it's not industrial it's it's it rolls around and it's got intelligence but it's something you would have you know at home okay it's not industrialized yeah. so don't be if our if, um, if if anybody googles spherical robot the picture I'm looking at is not that little toy ball <laughs> it's it's a traditional spherical robot it's it's like uh, what I would think of as like what you would see in a factory years and years and years ago, and it's been replaced, hasn't it, with uh, the advancements in exactly. Robots. Like I said, I think I think a spherical's been probably replaced by a um, uh, a articulate arm robot, I guess, or maybe a scare, probably a scare robot. Okay. Um, I'm looking at my picture again. I'm cheating. Sorry, I'm turned away <laughs> from the microphone. So yeah, a spherical. Is that the spherical? No, let me get the spherical up here. Oh, that's the toy. Yeah, I think the spherical robot's probably going to be uh, probably closer to, I don't know, a scare or an articulate arm. But okay. we don't we don't go around saying, "Hey, we got a spherical robot to show you." It's it's uh, it's really an old really old technology. It's been adapted or it's evolved. I guess. Okay. What about cylindrical robots? What are those? Um, hmm. Cylindrical robot. I didn't Google that one. Oh. Uh, so let me just reason this out. Cylinder. Uh, so. I guess you could put a cylinder on a rotation. I don't know what a cylindrical robot would be. Uh, again, I'm, I'm... Let me look at my notes here. You uh, you compared it to a three-axis scara. Is that When it? we were talking about earlier. Oh, okay, okay. When we so... did a re little review of it, yeah. Oh, I did. That's right. I did look it yeah. up. I did Google that one. Okay, sorry. Cylindrical robot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's definitely going to be closer to a scara. Okay. Um... It, it's just, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the one where uh, it's got a rotational base, so you get the theta on the base, uh, which would be like the shoulder joint, I guess, of a scare or articulated arm. But then you have, uh, when you get out toward the end, you have a linear actuator, and so you actually can reach uh, in a linear way. And so it's, a, it's an older design. Again, um, there's probably still folks out there that have something similar to it, but... Um, from my vantage point, it's probably not mo not as common. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going from the rarely used up to more um, used ones. Um, what about Delta robots, or some people might call them spider robots? Yeah, spider. That's a Delta is really high speed, really low payload. Um, okay. Honestly, I've seen most Delta robot applications in in food industry. Um, packaging so uh, uh where they're picking up muffins and things that are coming down the line and and loading them into the packaging so um if you have you know packaging that's got uh six little muffin cakes in it in the in the cellophane package uh, -huh. uh the muffins are coming down a conveyor and and then the delta robots are really really and they're coming down pretty quickly delta robots are very very fast uh but also low payload remember there's still this thing called physics and so the heavier the object, uh, the, the, 
the harder it is to accelerate, the more difficult it is to accelerate. So you kind of go hand in hand. If you want to accelerate something very quickly, your payload has to be either less or your robot's got to be really big. But you get to a point to where as you're going a bigger robot, you're going actually bigger motors, bigger rotors, bigger, bigger, more inertia. And so you get to a point where it's a saturation point where you cannot, physics will not allow you to accelerate an object any quicker than we're capable of accelerating an object feasibly. Okay. Um, and so a Delta robot is really, really fast. They look like upside down spiders. Yeah. Um, well, they have, a lot of them are rounded. The Fanuc ones are rounded, have a rounded cap and kind of an R2D2 with spider legs. Uh, but they, um, they work on a, what we, I guess you would call it a hexapod type coordinate system where you've got multiple linkages. But again, you can derive that through kinematics to a, um, XYZ type. Uh, coordinate system and so uh, again that's that's what we're doing so pick and place high speed uh, transfers and stuff of the muffin thing uh, then you tie that with vision systems and you may have you know one chocolate muffin one you know white cake or yellow cake muffin and one white cake muffin and you want one of each in your in your package of stuff that's going down to you know the convenience store and so the vision system is going to communicate with the delta and they'll High-speed grab the, the chocolate one and load it in place and the yellow cake one and, and the white cake one. And so you make sure that you've got one of all three, but they're all three coming down the conveyor. Okay. Because wow. they're still cake. They're still going to go through the same oven cycle and icing cycle and whatever. It's just a different color of cake, I guess. So I've seen that kind of stuff before. Okay. But, but I've seen it more in the food industry, I think, than... And probably anywhere. Okay. What about the scare? You mentioned scare robots a lot. Scares have been around for a long. Well, all these have been around, but uh, scares have been around a long, long time. Uh, um, probably not as long as Cartesians, but uh, but but definitely. Um, so scare. Uh, you looked this up and told me I couldn't remember. Selective compliance assembly robot arm, uh, or selective compliance articulated robot arm. Um, not sure why there's a difference there. Uh, marketing, I guess, but uh, I don't know what the original um, definition of that was. I just always known them as scare robots. Um, a scare robot will, so so applications for scares, scares are usually not as quick as deltas, uh, but higher payload than a delta. Okay. But usually pretty quick because uh, it's a shoulder, you know, just like your shoulder joint, except the shoulder can only move in one plane. So you can't move... Uh, up and down, you can move left to right, oh, gotcha. parallel to the floor, and then your elbow can move, but again, only in that left-right plane, not up and down, uh, and then you don't have a wrist, that's all solid, and you usually have a Z-axis out there that can go up and down, and then, of course, that can also rotate, so you can end up with a four-axis, four four degrees of freedom. Uh-huh. Uh, you can, there's also a three-axis scara. Um, that's available. It, you you kind of went away, and now it's coming back because oh. you're eliminating an axis. And so, if you're doing pick and place, and you and you don't need to orient from a theta standpoint, you don't need to pay for another axis. And so, Vanix got that now with their their scaras. I'm not sure if Motoman's done that yet or not, but uh, um, but you can do a a three axis scara. Uh, Sometimes we're using a. Um, you ask about end of arm tooling. and What's the uh-huh. most common? Uh, another one is a is a suction cup. Okay. Well, if you're picking something up with a suction cup, uh, or even there's magnet magnetic heads and things of that nature, it's quite of what you're picking up. But if it's a suction cup, you're probably not too concerned about what the orientation of the part is. You just want to pick it up, move it over here. If it's a gripper, you had to actually orient to grab the edges. That oh, you want. okay. And so. Uh, you would need that theta, that fourth axis. But if you if you don't, if it's a if it's a just pick it up and move it over, and we don't care about the rotational orientation, then you can save some money by eliminating an axis. Okay. Does it save um, on programming? I would assume as well. And you know, no. <laughs> scaras are so super easy to program. At least they should be. If, if they're not, call us and use our scaras because ours are easy. Uh, because scaras. 
Um, and we talk again about collaborative, and I bring collaborative up because it's kind of the new thing. It's the latest, greatest thing. But collaborative is resembles an articulated arm robot, we're, which we're about to talk about. Um, but it allows you to do what's called direct teach, which is grab the end of the, the robot. The robot can go, because of the force sensors, can go into a floating mode to where you can move it around by hand. And when you let go, it doesn't crumple to the ground. It holds. Uh, Scaras have that because they don't, again, I was telling you, you move left to right, you can't move up and down. Uh-huh. So the Z-axis is a ball screw, usually, and, uh, and it has a brake on it that when you lose power, keeps it, you know, brake locks and it keeps it from dropping. Okay. Uh, but so they add a button there that's just a brake release. There's enough friction, usually, in the ball screw assembly that you can still move it up and down, but you move it and then you can click the button back off and it locks the brake. But you can just move a scara around and move it to where you want. It's a direct teach type robot. Oh. It always has been. Whereas articulate arm robots, you're usually using a teach pendant or something along those lines because you don't have those force built-in force sensors to, to do what you'd need to do for articulate arm like a collaborative. But a scara has always been direct teach okay. uh, because of that. And so scaras are... are are easier to program from that regard. So then it just comes down to when you're direct teaching a scara, does the Z-axis rotate or not oh. as far as, you know, that kind of thing. So I guess it does make it a little bit less complex from a programmer standpoint because you don't have to worry about making sure that your um, your rotation is where it's supposed to be. But again, if you have a gripper and the tooling already on the scara, you're going to naturally put it where it needs to be over the part. Usually when you're teaching, you actually have the parts. So, um, so I don't think it's considerable. Okay. All right. What about Cartesian robots? Well, I've talked a lot about Cartesian because again, we think in terms of Cartesian X, Y, and Z. And, and so Cartesian, uh, Cartesian robots, how they benefit over, uh, you you know, the scaras and the articulated arms, it really comes down to what you're doing. Um, it used to be a Cartesian, Cartesian robot was less expensive, considerably less expensive to construct than an articulated arm robot or a scare robot may cost. That's not the case anymore. Oh. Uh, the cost of scare robots and articulated arm robots have come way down. Um, but there are things you can do with a Cartesian faster, quicker, easier, smaller envelopes that you cannot do with a scare or articulated arm. So it really comes down to your work envelope as far as considerations. Okay. But uh, but cost-wise, sometimes a Cartesian can cost more today uh, than if you get to a three or four axis Cartesian, then you know, a scare or articulated arm would work and st- or would cost in the same work area, work envelope. Okay. All right. So what um, applications do you see for the Cartesian? Cartesian, we do a lot of dispensing, okay, um, inspection, things of that nature. Uh, certainly, uh, pick and place, high speed pick and place. Um, you know, in the injection mold machines, uh, a lot of folks have. If you're in manufacturing, you may have some injection mold machines, and so you're injecting a material, rubber, plastic, something into a die or mold, uh, and then the mold opens, and there's the parts. Oh, usually they're pretty hot. Um, and so they use a robot to reach down and, and the part kind of has injection pins that loosens it, but just grabs the part, comes up, moves over and drops it on a conveyor. And it's a very basic Cartesian design. Uh, as far as usually it's, uh, um, not much of a rotation on the end. It could be even be pneumatic, just a 90 degree rotation, uh, to basically reach into the mold and then come out, rotate up and down. And then th- there's a Z axis, Oh, well, there's two axes. I guess you would call it an XZ or a YZ according to your, your vantage point. But it's usually just a two axis with a pneumatic type thing. So it's kind of basic. It could have a third axis according to the, the how um, the machine's working on the mold design. But uh, injection mold machines where you see a lot of them. Uh, but, uh, but we also use them a lot for... Uh, inspection and dispensing. Okay, okay. Place. I know we've we've gone over articulated robots a lot because they're the most common. So do you want to well, go into a little bit more on those? I don't know that they're the most common. Oh. It's just the most common picture that everybody sees yeah. in their mind. Okay. And so, uh, you know, Iron Man, the movie Iron Man, um, uh, he has his, in his lab, he calls him Dummy, 
D-U-M-E, is actually that robot's name. He actually has a name. Now, why I know that is because we actually had an intern here who was a huge, huge uh, Iron Man Marvel fan. And uh, we he was an intern. And when he left, um, we made him a cake. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to, well, I thought it would be cute to put that on his, you know, to refer to him as that robot. And I was like, does that robot have a name? Uh, I didn't want to refer to him as Iron Man. Uh, it wouldn't be, that wouldn't be as funny. Uh, so I Googled it, and D-U-M-E, I think, is dummy, is, is what uh, what he refers to that, that robot as. But uh, it's a very, very, very basic articulated arm robot. And may even fall into that spherical or, or cylindrical or whatever type range. But, uh, but, but an articulated arm robot is what we see, what we think of when you're seeing car comp- you know, car commercials where, where they're welding the car frames as they're coming okay. down. Uh, they can be mounted from the ceiling, from the wall, from the floor. But those large robots that are actually resemble your shoulder, your elbow, your wrist, uh, the rotation, the whole nine yards, where you can, you know, it can contort a certain way and reach into tight spaces and things of that nature. We use them for welding, for painting, for pick and place, for inspection, because they're really close to you working like the human arm works from the shoulder down. And so you have those degrees of freedom. There's six axis, there's five axis variations, there's things of that nature. And so we use them quite a lot. But again, they used to be very cost, very, very, very costly. And so you really only see them in the very, very largest, you know, again, um, huge automotive manufacturing assembly plants and things of that nature. But today they're less expensive. Uh, and so we're we're using them more and more. They're becoming okay. more acceptable. Okay. Okay. So we should have probably gone over this at the very beginning, but the benefits of putting an industrial robot um, in the uh, manufacturing facility. What? So I, my I gather that it um, for harsh environments mm-hmm. and for repetitive work. Mm-hmm. Um, what else would? Uh, how could manufacturers benefit from just from industrial robots in general? Mm-hmm. Um, well, sometimes it, it, it is harsh environments. You know, like we talked about the, the uh, injection mold machines. Those those molds are usually heated. They're usually the parts coming out are very warm, and so you wouldn't want to really reach into to that environment. Or it, if it's a painting booth or something like that, or you're spraying harsh adhesives or things of that nature, um, it may be that this thing is very heavy. Okay. So there's robots that can pick up whole car bodies and things of that nature. Um, welding, um, you're just constantly welding all day long. Well, for a human being, that would be very fatiguing yeah. to do. And then, then the accuracy comes into play and things of that nature. Okay. You know, there's a there's a lot there's always been discussion about plants are putting in robots and that's eliminating employees. It's eliminating jobs. What do you think about that? Well, I think that it gives way to a much higher pay grade of job um, because support. I don't care whose robot it is. It's going to fail. It's going to have problems. It's going to need to have the the, the points re, retaught, things of that nature. It's going to need maintenance. So from a maintenance standpoint, a troubleshooting standpoint, a programming standpoint, all these jobs result from that. And quite honestly, we're seeing more and more folks, especially here in the great state of Tennessee, where a two-year college degree is free. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we are one of the only states, I think, that actually we've been doing free college for a while. Uh, you know, that's in, in this year of this election and past years of elections, free college has been something that they use as a point of issue. We're kind of like, well, we're doing it. We've done it. So in the state of Tennessee, you you can get a two-year degree. The question is, what's that degree going to be? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of training for that. Of course, that's why we opened Della Tech University to do those kind of trainings. Uh, but uh, but that's the kind of things that I see is that um, for industrial robots, it, it's not because most of the applications wouldn't be something a person would do anyway. It, it requires too much. Uh, what's the word I'm trying to look for? Too too much precision, too much redundancy, or it's a harsh environment, or it's too heavy, or or something along those okay. lines. But you still have to have someone on staff who knows how to keep that thing doing those things to those precise levels. And, and, you know, it's going to wear. So, again, we talked about arm tooling wearing. We talked about a lot of different things uh, that happen. Uh, there are still machines. And, and until someone invents a vehicle that never needs maintenance and never breaks, 
robots are always going to need maintenance. They're always going to yeah. break. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what are the differences between industrial robots and collaborative robots? You had mentioned it before, you know. There's a lot of differences and a lot of perceived differences. Okay. And so the difference is not a whole lot. Collaborative robot and industrial robot. Um, collaborative robot has four sensors in place to make it more more safe. So it can sense, because of four sensors at each, each axis or each joint, it can sense a collision with a person. An industrial robot has the capability of sensing collisions, but it's looking for collisions with, you know, things, things oh, not people. Okay. Uh, and so we have to guard the robots. We have all kinds of things with industrial robots that are required. Well, collaborative robots aren't that much different. You still have to do a safety evaluation. Every plant has to decide, is this safe or not in this application? Uh, Collaboratives, even more so. When they were invented, uh, many thought that collaboratives really were the people replacer robots. Yeah. Uh, because you could slide a, the, the vision was you could slide a robot right in between, you know, Joe and Nancy here and say, scoot over guys, we've got a robot doing this job today, uh, that, you know, this extra job between you. And so it's just working right there as part of them. You but you can't do that because you don't want to hurt Joe or Nancy. Yeah. And it's according to what the end of arm tooling is like and things of that nature. If it's, if it's a blunt object moving very slowly, Okay, but most people don't want robots to move slowly. That's true. <laughs> because what's the point of having a robot that has to move slower than a person that's working next to them? The people are waiting on the robot. You don't want that. So what? It, well, you know, what's the point? And so you've got to do it in a safety evaluation. If that thing is not a blunt object, if it's a sharp object, then you have to move even more slowly or you have to guard it. Okay. And every, we said, I've said this before, Every collaborative robot I've ever seen is guarded. It either has a light guarding from a safety scanner or or light curtain or something within so many feet of it or something. They always end up doing something to it because, God forbid, something happens to the people that are next to it. But mostly they want it to run fast, as fast as it can, uh, and still maintain you know, because it's designed, it's not designed to be an industrial robot, it's designed to be collaborative. So there's limits, it'll run so fast, but then it's going to start faulting out because it doesn't know the difference. It still wants to be collaborative. You can't just turn it off and say you're not collaborative anymore. Oh, okay. So there's limits to that, at least in the designs that I've seen that are out today. But they almost always will put a, a safety scanner in place at the very least, which has a cost that uh, will say if someone comes in vicinity of this, I'm going to slow it down. I'm going to decrease the speed and all this kind of stuff as long as they're in the vicinity or stop it altogether to ensure that it's safe. Because it may be that it won't pass your health and safety inspection or your OSHA inspection if you if you don't have that. Okay, okay. So there is a big push for the collaborative robots. What things should folks consider when deciding between an industrial robot and a collaborative? Well, one of the one of the things that people... The perceptions. A collaborative robot is cheaper, less expensive than uh, an industrial solution. And that's not always the case. Okay. Um, Collaborative robots are, some are less expensive. We represent a collaborative robot line that is less expensive than other collaborative robot lines. And I think built better. I encourage everyone to give us a call and let us tell you about them. Hanwha Robots. Uh, But... um, but fully, they're fully collaborative. But if you're, they're industrial robots now. As long as they'll, again, as long as they'll meet the the payload requirements and the work envelope requirements and things of that nature, you can get industrial robots that cost less, sometimes significantly less, compared to some of the more common, most common collaborative units that are out there now. And so you may be, I don't know, fifty thousand dollars for a collaborative solution. But now there's a there's a, there are industrial robots you can get for thirty thousand now. With industrial robots, you have to have the well. You, with both, you have to have some sort of guarding. Well, and then the integration costs, and then connectivity, and all that stuff. What about that? Well, that's true. Uh, the collaborative robots, though, if 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 you're even if you're saying even if you're the one person that I've never met that doesn't have to guard it, and you do have to guard the industrial robot. Uh-huh. 
if you're if you're a thirty thousand dollar industrial robot versus a fifty thousand dollar collaborative robot, you can pay for a lot of guarding with twenty thousand dollars. So what are you benefiting from it? Now, the direct teach is really nice, but how often are you having to direct teach the thing? If you're having to program it and reprogram it and reprogram it all the time, something's wrong. Hopefully you only program it once and then it runs. So there's there's things that need to be considered on that. But connectivity, you mentioned connectivity. Uh We've done the IoT stuff. For us... We have said no. We've had lots of, we've had, not say lots, we've had some robot companies come to us, manufacturers come to us and say, we want you to be, uh, represent us and promote our products and stuff through your, through your machine building and integration and, and whatnot. And then we say, okay, well, what about connectivity? Well, they rattle off the same things, uh, field buses, uh, mostly deterministic field buses, Profinet, Ethernet IP, EtherCAT, those kind of things that they support. But that's not really connectivity on the enterprise side. And so, of course, our, our IOTA product doesn't support deterministic field buses because field buses are really meant for remote I.O. and things that really have to do with the process where we need determinism. Usually data going up and knowing statuses and traceability and stuff like that is not something that needs determinism. And determinism requires more expense and more chipsets and things of that nature and, and licensing and things of that nature. So we can avoid all that by by the way we do it with his native drivers. I'm jumping over to another podcast. So I know. know I was so like, I, oh my goodness. Go to that podcast. But <laughs> connectivity, in my mind, because we are now solidly into an industrial Internet of Things revolution. We're in the, we're, we are in the well into the folds of Industry 4.0. If you are not collecting data from your processes, especially your robot cells, mm-hmm. either, either you're in an industry where it doesn't matter or you're missing the boat. And and if you are not if you're not doing it because you think it's too hard, call Elatech today <laughs> because our our data commander and IOTA products make it very very easy. And then the last thing is support. Every robot is going to need support, even if you have someone inside that's trained up that they've gone through our robot classes at Elatech University and gotten their certificate, and now they can go in and they can do all the things. They're a maintenance troubleshooter for these robots. They still need support for the hard things. What kind of support do you have, either from the factory or from your your local integrator, uh, those kind of things? You, those are considerations I think that people should take into mm-hmm. consideration. Yeah. Well, I don't have any more questions for you, Brandon. www.elatech.com is where you can find us. Um, do you, uh, you've got a, did you make a new link for us? Uh, How to choose the right robot? I, I, I Yes, I do. I, I didn't want to... Um... We're running out of time, so oh. I didn't want to go over that. But if people do want some tips and advice, our engineers have um, put together some um, really good tips for you. So if you want to well, uh, narrow down your choices and then also um, some advice when you're ready to buy a robot, there's um, some stuff to consider on, on the website as well. It's under our facts page. Cool. So So give us a call, guys. uh, Listen, I want to thank you guys uh, for for, we've had a lot of downloads. We've got a lot of interest. We've had some comments. We've had a lot of insights. We're working on some new things. We are rolling in uh, 55 minutes. We're going to try and get these things down closer to a half hour, but there's a lot to talk about. It always turns into more than I expect. Uh, But I hope you're enjoying them. Um, Continue to to, to let us know your feedback and Uh, We're going to continue to do these things. So, Beth, thank you very much. Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Guys, have a fantastic day, and and call us, and we'll sell you a robot. (laughs) See y'all.